In the summer of 1996, I was just entering into my third year in the U.S. Coast Guard, and I got transferred from a unit in Seattle, Washington, to Port Angeles. And I was attached to this unit, a 110-foot uh, fast patrol cutter, uh, and I started off as the auxiliary engineer, doing all of the water-making systems, hydraulics, all that kind of stuff. And then about six months in or so, I transferred into main propulsion. And my point in that story is that I knew that ship inside and out, how it worked, what its strengths and weaknesses were. I knew that it had two massive 16-cylinder engines that each made 2,880 horsepower. This thing was a beast. It had a range of 1,800 miles. It could go over 30 knots, and it was rated for 90-knot winds and 50-foot seas, all on paper, at least. <laughs> I had very few reservations about what this ship could handle. But my faith was tested on a dark winter night when we were on patrol and it was getting, a storm was forecasted, a nasty storm, and so we anchored out, uh, actually tied up to a mooring ball in Nia Bay, Washington. Many of you know where that's at. And that night in Nia Bay, the wind, Nia Bay sheltered, the wind was spiking at sometimes over 50 knots. That's roughly 60 miles an hour in the shelter. And late that night, we got a call that there's a vessel in distress off the Washington coast by Quileute River. And so we turned that corner where the Strait of Juan de Fuca spills out into the Pacific Ocean. We were met with swells at 30 feet and then wind waves on top of that. And at one point, I went up to the bridge to give the, the hourly uh, engineering report to the captain. The, the bridge height is 21 feet above the waterline and the waves were 10 to 15 feet higher than us. It was absolutely terrifying. I was 21 years old, and then I caught the eye of, uh, of, the, of the man who was controlling the ship. It wasn't the captain. It was actually a guy with a lot more experience than the captain. It was a senior chief. And this senior chief did not look anxious. He did not look scared. He was, he was intense. <laughs> he was focused. But that dude is what we would call a salty character. He had more sea time than I had lifetime. And I looked at his calm demeanor, and I believed that we were going to get through that storm. I was still pretty scared, but I believed if that guy is at the helm of this ship, we are going to be okay. This evening, we're going to read a sea story together. It's a story that takes place on the Sea of Galilee. It involves a boat and some terrified sailors. And whether you resonate with sea stories or not, like some of your serious land lovers have no idea what I'm talking about, that's fine. The story is really about when a person gets to the end of their rope, to the end of their abilities, the end of their control, and that is a human issue. I bet you we can all resonate with that. And the question, of course, in this story that we're about to read is, in the storms of life, to whom will we turn when we are not enough? So if you're able, I invite you to stand while we read Mark 4, 35 to 41. And it goes like this. On that day when evening came, he, Jesus, said to them, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat such that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself 
was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you even care that we're perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Shut up. Your mouth be closed. Be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Then they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Lord, who are you indeed? We think we know you. We think you, we know the basics about you. But you are mysterious and powerful and good. Forgive us for thinking we can plumb the depths of your character. And I pray for your grace and blessing to know you more deeply tonight than we did before. Amen. You may be seated. So Mark is telling the story, and Mark gives us a context marker. If you recall, um, maybe in the beginning of chapter four, Jesus is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and such a big crowd is pressing in around him that he decides to get into a boat. Um, remember, uh, four of his 12 disciples were fishermen, and so uh, he, he gets into a boat, and he does that so that he can stand off the shore, like I'm a bit far away from you, and of course, on the sea, sound carries, and so Jesus is able to push back from shore a little bit, and then he's able to address this larger crowd on the seashore. Almost certainly, his disciples are in the boat, because if you've ever been a boat, in a boat, and you put it here and it's in the water and you're talking to Frank, eventually I'm going like this, right? Because the sea is pushing me. So he needs some sailors there to keep him on station. They got the oars in the, in the water just to keep him level with all of the people. In fact, what's interesting is back in the 80s, archaeologists discovered a first century boat uh, that was uh, of common design. They had lots of pieces of these kinds of boats, but in the, in the 80s, they found a really well-preserved boat. In fact, let's put that picture up uh, on the screen in just that first part. This is in a museum in Israel, and you can see uh, it, it was in the, the silt, in the sediment of the sea. It was well-preserved, and uh, it's roughly 27 feet long. It's roughly eight feet wide, and this is the common size and configuration of a fishing boat in that era. What you don't see, in fact, we can go to the next slide, uh, what you don't see is they've, they've redone that uh, to see what it would probably look like. You can see in the stern and the bow, there's a little covered area, and you could actually get in underneath that covered area uh, for a little bit of shelter. So that's conceivably where Jesus is hiding out and uh, asleep on the boat in this story, right? Um, it's from a boat like this that Jesus then, in, in Mark chapter 4, preaches that parable about the four soils, and, and, then he, and then he preaches the parable about the sower, and then he preaches the parable about the mustard seed. And now, in verse 35, Jesus is already in the boat, and he instructs his disciples, hey, take me to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or the lake. The story kind of stands by itself as a short 
yet exciting narrative adventure about peril and resolution and and an invitation to the reader to consider what I think is the main point of the, the story is who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him. I mean, that's kind of the, uh, the main part. But besides like the historicity of the story, Mark has crafted telling the story in such a way that he gets us to think deeper about it. And in particular, Mark organizes his story about this storm uh, around three mega events. The root word from which we get the word mega, you all know what mega means, large and you know, awesome and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it, it comes from the Greek word megas. And, and we're gonna see a slide about this word. Here, we're gonna put this right here. So the top word is how it looks in lowercase, lowercase Greece, Greek, <laughs> megas. It's pronounced megas. And it means large, great, powerful, extraordinary. And when this word in this story that we just read gets translated into English, the translators were thinking, um, well, it's kind of redundant to use the word mega. That's not a very common English word in, in modern 20th century, 21st century English. And so let's change that word. And so what they did is they, they made it more readable. And so we get things like a fierce storm rose up, and then when Jesus rebuked that fierce storm, it became perfectly calm, and then when the disciples are afraid, it says that they were very much afraid. But in Greek, in the Greek text, it says there was a mega wind, and then it became mega calm, and they were mega scared. That's literally how it, and you can see why our English translators changed that, because it's not very readable. But mega storm mega calm, and mega afraid. So let's just start with the first one, this mega wind or mega storm. Um, Remember, the first four disciples that Jesus chose of his 12 are fishermen, men who knew their way around uh, around boats and around the sea, particularly around the Sea of Galilee. That's the place where they, they were in Capernaum. That's on the Sea of Galilee. Peter, Andrew, James, and John all experienced on the water. And Jesus was tired after preaching, he fell asleep. He's in the stern of this boat on the cushion. And, uh, and he wasn't a boat man anyway, right? He's just like, hey, disciples, let's go to the other side. Can you take us there? Oh, yeah, I've got this. It's like, we do this every day. We're fishermen. We can do this. So like, Jesus goes to sleep, uh, and, and it's not his expertise, right? He's, he's the miracle guy. They, you know, they're, they're, they're the boat guys. So filled with confidence in their experience and their skill set and their vessel, this crew was in their element. They had knowledge and ability. They assumed they would succeed in taking their masters to the other side until they weren't so sure they were going to make it to the other side. Because all of a sudden, a mega wind begins to blow off the face of the cliffs that surround the Sea of Galilee, and these salty sailors had experienced storms before. Like Ancient accounts of the Sea of Galilee tell us that those winds, when there's a pressure drop or rise, that wind comes just rushing down those cliffs, hits that water, and this is a big lake. I mean, it's called the Sea of Galilee. Think like Great Lake size. You can actually surf on those lakes when the wind is right. And so this is a big, this is a big storm system is a common thing that can happen and it can happen instantly and yet the storm which is a common occurrence on the sea of galilee was more than these guys could handle and at that moment they realized that they were hopelessly and likely tragically at the end of their capabilities 
Their voyage started off confidently, but when the storm came up upon them, they found themselves, themselves powerless. They did not have the ability to save themselves in that moment. Have you ever experienced a time in your life when you were at the end of your proverbial rope? The end of your ability to resolve a conflict, to solve a problem? Maybe it's a medical condition or a relational issue or a financial issue. Ever felt stretched beyond your personal resources? The disciples are so scared. They see Jesus sleeping and they cry out, Teacher, don't you even care that we're about to perish? You ever feel that way? It's okay to feel that way. You or someone you love facing a challenge that is beyond you or beyond them, and yet God feels distant, uninvolved, asleep during the storm that you're going through. Take just a moment, actually. Take just a moment and consider a current example where you might feel over your head, facing a problem or a situation that you can't control. These moments, these um, mega winds, mega storms, they are stark, uncomfortable wake-up calls that reminds us of our physical, spiritual, intellectual, and emotional limitations as human beings. We can only go on the words that we have in the story and the words say that the disciples cried out to Jesus, teacher, don't you care? We are perishing. That's how they felt. Which brings us to the second mega, the mega calm. Jesus gets up and he rebukes the storm, which I think is interesting. How do you get mad at a storm? How do you rebuke a storm? And I think you have to appreciate that for the disciples and people in first century Palestine, um, there was more to the storm than just facing a weather event. You see, in the ancient world, there was water, which is like, you know, they didn't know about H2O, but they knew like water is water, and it's a wet substance, and you drink it, and you can purify it, and you can do religious things with it, and you can water your crops with it. Like, water is kind of benign. If anything, it's a source of life, and it's a good thing. That's water. But then there's the sea. And in the ancient world, the sea is an ominous thing. It is a frightening thing. It is, there are stories of creatures in the sea. The kraken. I just like hockey. Uh, but like, uh, 
there is personified evil in the storm. It is a, and, and most Israelites in the first century especially, they weren't boat people. You had fishermen who got on the sea, but they pretty much left all of that boat stuff to the Phoenicians. They were the seafaring people. Israelites were happy being on land most of the time. And so this is a scary thing that they're facing. The storm that rose up and terrified the disciples, uh, it terrified them not only because it's water and they could drown in it, but they likely feared that they might be in the hands of an angry God, or worse yet, in the throes of a primordial chaos. Something huge and evil thrashing about in that sea. Remember, it's also evening when they set sail. The dark is either dim or it's, or the, the light is dim or it's gone. There's no electric lamps in these days, remember that? And an oil lamp will do you no good in a storm like that. In fact, you want to put it out because if it breaks in the storm, it burns, it puts your boat on fire. That's the last thing you have to survive in, right? So it's dark. And what, it, again, ancient thinking, in the darkness, that's when demons are at play. It's not safe to be in the dark. Like, we've been accustomed to going out late and in the dark because we always have lights. Our phones have lights. My watch has a light. I mean, there's lights everywhere. It's electricity, but not in the ancient world. So just different ways of seeing things. So back in Mark 125, Jesus cast out a demon um, by using a Greek word that means shut your mouth or be still. What's interesting is in this weather event, Jesus used the exact same word. And he tells the storm to shut up and to be still. There's more going on in this story than a mere storm. These are spiritual forces at work. And this story reads almost like an exorcism. Who is this man in the boat that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this Jesus? That's exactly the the, the question of the story. And so, so far we've encountered a mega storm and when Jesus intervenes, we have a mega calm. But then he sort of rebukes the disciples and says, why are you afraid? Where's your faith? Why do you still have no faith? And it's at this point we encounter the third mega. The text says that the disciples experienced mega fear. And they said to one another, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? The question. Now, right before I started preaching, Dave got up and knocked it out of the park with his reading of Jonah chapter one, the first 17 verses of that whole chapter. And I chose that biblical text because scholars believe that Mark's original audience would have listened to the story about Jesus and been thinking, this sounds a lot like, like Jonah. Here are just a few examples. Uh, Jonah and Jesus both depart on a boat with the crew. Both Jesus and Jonah encountered a mega storm. In fact, Jonah, which is written in Hebrew, um, when it was translated into Greek called the Septuagint, that's the word that is used to describe that storm in Jonah. It's a mega storm. Same exact word. Both Jesus and Jonah are asleep through the storm, and then they're awakened by the crew. Both stories have mega-frightened sailors. Again, when that story, Jonah's translated into Greek, they were mega-frightened, just like Jesus' crew. Both stories have a miraculous intervention in which the sea becomes mega-calm. And both stories have sailors or crew who are amazed at the miracle, so amazed they're even frightened by it. 
There are all sorts of ways that Mark could have told us the story about Jesus and the storm and the sea. Mark had lots of vocabulary words he could have used. Why did he use mega three times, almost as a mere image of Jonah? Why would he do that? Why the same descriptions of great storm, great calm, great fear? Because I think Mark is a great teacher. And I think that he knows that his biblically informed original audience would have quickly made the link to that Jonah story. And they would have said, it's like Jonah, but it's almost different at every single turn of the story. And it's the differences that are highlighted when you think about it. Just like uh, when I try and annoy my kids and I'll take a common tune, like a Disney tune or a commercial, and I'll put dad lyrics to it and just make up some funny thing, right? And they'll just like, dad, that's not how it goes. They don't tell me what the real song is. They just know I did it wrong. And that's kind of what Mark is doing in this master teaching is he's making these allusions to Jonah by using the same vocabulary, but he's showing us how different this story is from the Jonah story. Jonah was a reluctant prophet running from God because God sent him to the Ninevites, a pagan people who had tormented the Israelites in gruesome ways. And Jonah said, God, I know that I'm going to go there and preach hellfire and damnation. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to turn and repent and you're going to save them because that's the kind of God you are and I don't want them to be saved. And so Jonah runs the other way. Where's Jesus going? You know what the next story in the scripture is in Mark? Jesus goes to a pagan place where there's a dude who's lost his mind living among demons in a cemetery. One of the most, and he's, there's a herd of pigs. It's like if you were to say to a Jewish person, hey, what's the most unclean environment you could go to? Well, it would be have pigs, dead people, and demons. That's where Jesus is going. He's very unlike Jonah. He's going to the Gentiles. He's going to the lost. Whereas God creates the storm in the book of Jonah in order to get Jonah's attention, Jesus is resisted by the powers of evil who want to stop him from doing the work of God on the other side of that seashore. Spiritual resistance to the way of God. Whereas Jonah is asleep in the storm because he's apathetic and self-loathing and selfish. He's avoiding responsibility. Jesus is asleep in the storm because uh, it symbolizes the biblical picture of God being in control, non-anxious, sovereign over all. Multiple places in the scripture describe uh, uh, the heavenly father as chilling because he's not anxious about things. You can afford to be non-anxious about things when you're in control of everything. Whereas the crew in the Jonah story ask Jonah, petition your God to save us, the crew in the Jesus story petition Jesus to save them. Who is this man in our boat with us? In Scripture, prophets like Moses and Elijah Leaders like Joshua, they experience weather and water behaving in supernatural ways, but it is always by a request or by the hand of God. In this story, different thing going on. Jesus speaks and creation obeys. 
Who does this? You ask a Jewish person in the first century, only one person does this. It's Yahweh. Psalm 89 describes Yahweh calming the wind and the waves. Psalm 104, lots of psalms talk about God as creation over, or sovereign over creation. Something only God can do. So Mark's original audience were living, remember this, this story's about Jesus. I know it's like mind warp here. Story's about Jesus, but the people who are hearing the story about Jesus written in Mark's gospel they're already after the resurrection. Mark hasn't, this hasn't been written until after the resurrection of Jesus. So his original audience is hearing this after the resurrection, which means that there's another wrinkle in this linkage between Jesus and Jonah. Because Jonah gave himself to sacrifice, sacrificed his own life to save the crew, right? He says, throw me overboard. I know it's my fault. They throw him overboard, then there's calmness, right? The crew is saved. Um, he ends up in the belly of a sea monster for three days before seeing the light of his own life. Jesus, of course, would give his life to save the world. He would be in the dark belly of a tomb for three days before the Father brought him forth to new life and resurrection. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey his voice? This must be, Mark is saying, wants us to pick up what he's putting down. This must be the Son of God. This must be the Son of Man. Mark's intent is to show us who Jesus really is and to make the argument for his divinity by examples, historical examples of his real life with real witnesses who are still alive at the time of Mark's writing. That's pretty cool. Good theology, good thinking is vital to a good life to healthy ways of seeing ourselves, It's vital to healthy ways of seeing the world. What we believe about God and Jesus, humans and creation, what we believe about why we were made and why we're here, what we believe about where all of this is going fundamentally changes how we will live in the world. It matters. Theology, right thinking matters. But can I tell you something else that I'm struck by in this story? As important as good theology is, you don't have to have your theology all settled and all figured out and well articulated or even 100% correct in order to trust in Jesus. Think about that a minute. Think about what that means. If what I just said is not true, then we are in serious, serious trouble because I've never met a person who knows all there is to know of God. Never met one. And the few people I've heard that claim to, more God-like narcissists than anyone I'd want to listen to. Good theology ought to be required for leadership and teaching in the church and higher education. I get that. I try. But even when we're all learning all the time, we can never get it all right. But what I see in this story is that even though Jesus confronts them on their lack of faith, notice he saves them first. 
Maybe if they'd had more faith, they would have been more calm and uh, that Jesus was in the boat, right? I mean, maybe. Uh, maybe if they had more faith, they could have prayed for a miracle and seen it happen themselves. I mean, maybe. But the fact is that they had a shred of faith, a mustard seed side of, uh, size of faith. And that they had just enough faith that maybe if they woke Jesus up, he could do something. And their faith wasn't perfect. Their theology wasn't well formed yet. But they got Jesus' attention with faithful honesty. That's what they had. Faithful honesty. They were being honest. Jesus, we feel like we're going to die. That's honesty. They were experiencing panic and fear. And what makes their honesty faithful is that they were faithful to bring their honesty to Jesus. That's what makes it faithful. You see, a lot of us are good at one or the other, honesty or faithfulness, right? So either we're good at being honest, like insert your complaining or anxiety or fear. We're good about that, some of us, but we don't bring it to Jesus. Or we go to Jesus. Yeah, I go to Jesus all the time, but we come with like this polished up exterior. We come like we think we need to come for Jesus rather than coming honestly with all of our messiness and all of our fear and even our anger. Oh, most of us in the West, we are very afraid of our own anger. So taking into consideration, though, all that we know about Jesus, not only his power, but his kindness and his love for us, what would it look like this week for you and I to be faithfully honest with God? Let me just make a suggestion Maybe you use a journal or a piece of art or just a prayer time if you don't want to write things or create visual things. Maybe just a prayer time. Whatever sounds like your MO. But what if you shared your real self, your real desires, your real fears and anger and pain and joy and regrets, your real self with Jesus? He may seem asleep in the storm right now, but it's only because he is the non-anxious master who is deeply caring for us, so much so that he died for us that we might live. So let our application to this text this week be to come to our Savior with faithful honesty. Lord, thank you for being the kind of God who allows us, invites us even, to be honest with you. Help us to trust that we can open our hearts up to you, that you will receive us, that you actually care. And I pray, Lord, for my sisters and brothers and I who are walking through storms, mega storms, with mega fear, that you would bring a mega calm, a mega peace. Thank you, Lord. Amen.